When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 27, The Old Gods in Post-Roman Wales. As we enter the 5th century, and as we enter the age of late antiquity, as Rome has abandoned its British provinces, we're left with a lot of different mixed ideas and mixed notions which have come into this story uh, Welsh history itself is replete with myths and legendary figures, from the War of the Red and White Dragon to Merlin, Arthur, to the semi-historical Vortigern and Taliesin. These men and stories are, were touchstones of the Welsh conscious going back at least to the 8th century. As time has moved forward, the stories changed and mutated until in this age, when Ar King Arthur is mixed with the wizard Merlin and his ancestor, in quotes, Vortigern, where the concepts of powerful legendary figures overwhelm what little history there might have even granularly laid behind them, to the point where these stories for historians have about as much accuracy as ancient aliens do. While they fire the imagination of people, it is exactly the fact that they are stories which makes historians think of them as dangerously mythological. It would be the equivalent to saying that there was historical evidence for Hercules, or for Achilles for that matter. That people believe that there could be evidence does not by nature offer evidence. If anything, it offers a lack of evidence. In the midst of a period of chaos, the old and the new mixed. Mythology, likely as old as the language of Britain, mixed with the Roman pantheon, and grew in the heat of Christian orthodoxy to become legends of the survivors of the chaos. The Welsh historical understanding of their own mythology is replete with great heroes and legends, with gods and goddesses, with mystical figures that cause mischief or create fantastical stories. But that's just what they are. They have a lot more in common with Homer and the Iliad than they do with Herodotus. They have a lot more in common with stories that we grew up with from Grimm's fairy tales and Cannes Christian Andersen than they do with Bede and with pseudo and real historians of the age. The reality of it is, just like Brutus and the so-called founding of Britain in the Roman period and the post-Roman period, these stories are nothing more than, if not fiction, speculation at best. And because of that, they're fascinating to study. There's no doubt about it. And they have some place in our understanding of history because these are stories that this group of people is telling themselves. And they're telling it to themselves for different reasons. In some cases, to build a sense of uh, oneness and unity. In another case, to build as propaganda as opposed to actual storytelling. And we have to look at them as such. We can't look at these things and say, well, 
if we take this nugget here and this nugget there and mix them together, we can find a historical evidence in them. That's the difficulty and the danger of these stories. They do lead us to think that there may be some nugget of truth in them. Just like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey led a lot of scholars and antiquarians to look for the site of Troy and look for Homer's discussions in these historical and heroic ages, we have the same problem even today with Arthur, with Merlin, with all of these figures that we just cannot legitimately find evidence of, but yet people are still have their imagination fired by the storytelling and still want to find these figures. One could argue that this is true in a lot of different places with a lot of different semi-mythological figures who there is no evidence of in history, but yet there is a desire to find them, to locate them, to know who they are, because they tell us something about ourselves as people. What Jewish person wouldn't want to know Moses, wouldn't want to have some idea who this figure is, for example, and to actually find out whether this is a historical figure we're talking about or purely a mythological one, you know, and to bring it closer to home for Christians, you could say the same thing about Jesus and Muhammad if we want to talk Islam. We don't really know these people. We only know them through lenses that were written by people later. And this is the same thing with a lot of semi and actual historical figures through history. We're looking at lenses written by others either years after the fact or at the very least not concurrent with their activities. So we can't know for sure what level is myth-making and what level is history, and we have to do our best in those circumstances. But we can tell some of the stories here, and that's kind of the purpose of this particular episode, is to tell a couple of the stories, give you an idea of what our ancestors found fascinating and found interesting, and you might be surprised at how often they have similarities to what we find interesting and fascinating even today. The whole genre of fantasy writing has been influenced by Welsh history and by Welsh legends and by Welsh mythology. Uh, that is pointed out even if we look at people like J.R.R. Tolkien, who used Welsh writing schemes and names to make up his elven people, that he thought that there was a lot of good and interesting things within Welsh mythology, which I'm sure he transferred and used in his own mythological writings, in his own idea of what would be an ancient Anglo-Saxon mythology. And it's fascinating to kind of look at that and draw comparisons to it and how they would measure against themselves. Uh, and I think we have within us the... This is a lot of fascinating things to talk about. But keep in mind within all that that they are a mixture of a lot of ideas. They come from different time periods. They're influenced by different writers who are picking up different things. Just like the ideas of what a Nordic god is and what the practices of the Vikings are not influenced as much by Viking writers as they are by Christian writers and by those that they were invading and, and fighting and dealing with. So there's a lot of propaganda that goes into what their habits were, much like what we talked about with the Druids. And so the concept that we can get a full idea of what was going on I think is speculation at best. What we probably can say is, is that Christianity was not widespread to the point where everyone was a Christian or understood what Christianity was. Even at the most vaguest points, 
there was people who mixed Christianity and other religions in the creation of their version of what they worshipped. And a lot of the old things that they believed in stayed, much like they did when the Romans came in. The Romans came in with their own pantheon of things. And if we look in Britain, there's a lot of evidence that it was picked up on, at least by the wealthy classes, because a lot of the the drawings and the the mosaics are done with what appear to be, at least, uh, Roman gods and Roman ideas. But even within them, there is some measure of confusion and thinking that possibly this is influenced by local deities and local ideas which were running around. So one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about today is the, and I, I'm going to apologize in advance. This is going to go forward. This is my, this is my um, default statement now with pronunciation. Um, we're getting out of the Latin pronunciation, which I struggled with as it was. We're now into Welsh pronunciation, and I will do my best to pronounce it as best as I can. There are times where, honest to goodness, I can't pronounce it properly, and I will say that in advance. So if I drive you crazy by my pronunciation, all I can say is I apologize. I will try and learn the proper pronunciations as much as I can. But even now, I'm already reading stuff and going, oh dear. <laughs> so with that in mind, as we move forward, please forgive me if I'm pronouncing things completely poorly. I will, as I say, try and make sure that that doesn't happen too often. But as much as I can get it right, I will try to get it right. But let's start about talking by one of the most important books and tales that were collected. Uh, these were collected in the Middle Ages, later Middle Ages. Um, we The first evidence we have of them was in other books. They weren't in their own literature. And unfortunately, that's a case with a lot of these writings. The, most of the collections of documents that we have in Wales of mythological figures and, and legendary figures comes not from the period in the 5th century and the 6th century, but rather comes much later. Typically, we don't actually see them in written form until the 11th and 12th centuries, and sometimes even later than that. So let's begin with the four branches of what is called the Mabinogi. The Mabinogi is a collection of stories. Um, they were written in four branches or parts, and comprises a bunch of myths and legends of early Welsh and possibly going back to Iron Age deities and heroes. They're collected again, as I said, in the 11th century, and how we end up getting them in modern day is often wrapped up in Arthurian legends and Arthurian stories, but I just want to focus in on the specific stories of the Mabinogi because they are not Arthurian, so they're not influenced by some of the post- Anglo-Saxon period. If you read them, they appear like stories that probably are referencing something of a much ancient date, but because of the way they're written and when they're written down, appear to be influenced by another writer. So they're taking stories that probably pre-existed and then converting them into morality tales to teach younger people. In fact, Mab is references a young person or a young man. So the idea that you would use this as kind of a teaching tool, not dissimilar from tales from Germany and from Russia, which are all about don't go out in the woods alone, don't do this, don't do that, you know, teaching you ideas about how to take care of yourself as a young person. This has similar kind of fantastical tales with a morality at the end. Um, so here's some of the examples of some of the characters and some of the people in the story. Um, 
One of the first ones is talking about uh, a guy by the name of Lu Xuao uh, Gaifes. I, and I, as I say, I apologize. That's as best as I can do. Uh, which means the bright one of the skillful hand. He's the son of Anharad. Uh, he lives under a curse from his mother who declared that he would never be able to have a human wife. And his uncle takes pity on him and decides to build for him a wife made of flowers. And so this magician named Math, uh, which some people have speculated is where Merlin originates, creates this beautiful woman called Bloodweth from the flowers of the meadow and a broom and an oak. An oak in both Druidic terms and in later Welsh ideas is very much an important part of their belief system. Druids considered the oak sacred. A lot of things that they got from it were key to how they uh, used it like to create rods and staffs and things of that nature. It was considered magical in some way to them. So this continues in the ideas later in Welsh mythology. So this is why I say these appear to have come from earlier dates than what we think of when they're initially published. So the idea with this character is that the flower woman is supposed to marry this man, but instead falls in love with another man, so she betrays him. And eventually, this particular man named Graun Pibir kills Hlu. And as he died, Hlu turns into an eagle and flew to an oak tree. Again, there's that symbolism. Uh, Guadian eventually comes to his rescue and he transforms him back into his human form. And then Hlu sought out and killed Graun and became the Lord of Gwyneth. Again, the history of, of Welsh kingdoms mixed into this. The idea of the oak tree is an important mystical thing. And again, there's the methodology and what goes on later. Uh, in fact, Bloodouth is punished for her treachery by being in love with this other man. How that's treachery, I'm not exactly sure, but whatever. And is turned into an owl for her troubles. So she goes from being flowers to a person to owl. Um, next up, and one of my favorite stories is actually Friannan and Poole. Now, this one is fascinating to me because it's it's one I've told my own kids because I think it's a, it's a great story. So the idea is, as you have, there's a, a prince of Dafid uh, named Poole who sees a girl riding a white horse through a meadow into some woods. Like basically there's some woods on the one side and woods on the other in this meadow in the middle. She rides out from the one side and rides to the other. And he consistently sends his, his fellow travelers to try and catch up to her. They can never catch up to her. He eventually goes to try and catch up to her, can't catch up to her. Finally, he yells her name. She finally stops. And he then marries her because of this. And I think it's it's a fascinating story, the idea of how they came together, the concepts that were involved. Um, if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including 
popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfast, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready to eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. It's, it's really weird. Like, you can kind of see in some ways in the story how the mythology is so different from how we think in some ways because the story goes that because these two decided to get married but without the consent of her parents when they had their first son the parents steal the baby and then accuse Rhiannon of murdering him as punishment then Poole made his wife stand on all fours like a horse and offer rides to whoever passed by which is very strange <laughs> And the end result is that Poole ends up finding their son after killing the monster that was guarding him and then takes him home to Rhiannon. And they name the son Prideri, which also means care. So it's interesting. Again, so the horse symbolism here, the idea that a child would be taken, this still remains, this child being stolen remains in Welsh mythology going forward and in Welsh tales even into more modern times because the idea of the 
the fairies coming to steal your your children and replacing them with bad children who are based on the fairy is an interesting concept and and it just feels like something going back to these kind of stories and one of the last stories that we have from Mabinogi is the a story of Bran the Blessed this one again is a very interesting and very fascinating story i i really like the idea of it because it tells a very intriguing tale it's very well drawn out you have a very good concept of things Effectively, you have this great king from Wales who makes an agreement with a king from Ireland. They eventually betray him, and this king then defeats all the Irish, but in the process, he ends up getting killed himself, and his head is chopped off, and they end up taking the head back to Wales, where they would end up burying it. Now, the whole storyline and where this story goes into the fantastical is the fact that Brown is purported to be this giant who can walk across the Irish Sea without having to swim. He His head pokes above the waves as they go. He's so large that they have to build a special building just for him to enter into. Some of the confederates of the Irish hide in, in these hanging bags, which then they leap out of. To get, it's, it's very, very intricate and very well planned out. When finally this Welsh king is killed and his head is chopped off, instead of him dying, his head stays alive and they carry it back to celebrate his life. And the big story ends with the concept that he would stay alive and continue to celebrate and talk to them until such time as they opened the door on the building that they were basically having this wake for him. And once they opened up the right door, it would then end and he would pass away and then he would have to take his head to be buried. And again, this looks like a god or a demigod, not a religious, like a, a Christian. This is where some of these stories get kind of mangled because the Christianity aspect comes in. But when you're listening to them or reading them, they don't sound very Christian in any way, shape, or form. They have a lot more in common with some of the old Celtic myths and the, especially what we know of as the Greek myths than they do in Christianity. And I think there is a concept of that going on here. There are times where what we see is Welsh deities and Irish deities who actually get transformed into saints later on because they had a relationship within them that were so important that they kept them even beyond. Uh, Branwen would be a good example of that, a figure from the... Mabinogi, who becomes a Welsh saint, these, but yet appears in all reality to be nothing more than a Welsh deity. And I feel like a lot of these stories are probably more ancient than they're given credit for. But it's difficult to know, obviously, because prior to the Roman arrival, we didn't have a written language in Britain, at least that we've been able to find, as I've said on previous occasions. And so we don't know how much of this existed before the Romans got here. How influenced was it by stories from the classical world? You know, the legends from Rome and the legends from Greece. We know that those influence later stories because the stories that are told by Gildas, by Bede, by Ninius, all contain the mythological foundation stones of Britain. The idea that Brutus came from Troy to create Britain and not that it actually probably legitimately comes from a, 
uh, a mangling of the word praetan, which was uh, referring to the word, the painted ones in Greek, but in Roman becomes Britain. So they've adapted stories to kind of fit the idea, and they've used a Roman mythology way of building them because it gives them power. Because the other thing is, too, is as you bring these Romantic stories in to your story, then when you're talking about what at that point was the greatest superpower in all the world, you could say, well, we have just as an important, just as influential beginning as they do. And they took their beginning from the Greeks. Because, of course, who would the Romans be? You know, what kind of people would they be if they weren't ancestors that fought against the Greeks at Troy? And so, of course, the the descendants of these people would also make up the population that settles Britain. And so the idea that Brutus, the king of the first king of Britain, is actually from Troy uh, and from Rome is something of an indication of how the Roman, the Roman ideas influenced Britain. One of the things we'll talk about in future and going down the road as we go is how much this crossover between the Roman British ideas merged to the point where there was two factions within the British public fighting for control, even as the Saxons and the other Federati were being brought over to defend the land. There were Roman Britons who were more Roman than Britain, and there were more British Romans who were more British than Roman. And these people obviously were conflicting on what to do and the solutions going forward. And it was also creating problems even amongst the noble classes. Gildas's writings and, and his criticisms of his his era come a lot of it comes out of the fact that he didn't think they were Roman enough, that they weren't being loyal to the Roman belief system. When Bede criticizes the British and calls them backsliders and lazy, he's comparing them not to the Anglo Saxons, but to the Romans. And he looks at them as being a failure because they didn't do what the Romans did. And, they, and the only reason why they were a success is because of the Romans. So we have this combination of things. So we'll continue to see that. And this feels a lot like that as you look at these myths and legends. And even Arthur and his origins, one could argue that his origins come out of Magnus Maximus, who becomes an amazingly important figure in Welsh mythology. And as we talk about Arthur, we're going to go back and talk about him because of his influence on Arthur's legend and stories. And another figure named Ambrosius Aurelius, who we know nothing about except for a mention in Gildas that's a line about his lineage and about how noble he was, who then becomes transformed into either a ancestor of Arthur or is Arthur, depending on which... Uh, pseudo-historian you're talking to and, and which writer is talking about him. So all of these figures will have the idea of why there's a dark age comes out of the fact that we have no real, honest-to-goodness, legitimate historical record that can tell us what's going on here. So we have to use these things like these legends, these mythologies, to try and get a concept of how things are going. And we have to remember that the 5th century in Britain is still a Roman century. Even though it feels like things have changed, even as the Roman centurions and the Roman mechanisms of civilization have left, 
there's still a Roman sense within Britain, and that Roman sense clashes with the British sense. And we're going to cover this in more detail in a few weeks, but I can tell you from just from my own studies of things, this is what it feels like, is that the conflict of this century is over whether they should be Roman or British, and then dealing with the consequences of being Roman and doing what Romans do, which is hiring barbarians to help you. And when the barbarians turn against you or become the majority, how do you deal with that? And that's the problem that they run into. And that's how we get the 6th century and onward, where the conflict is no more whether it's Britain and Rome, it's about whether it's Britain or it's England or Scotland or Wales and what happens after that. And I think those things, as we go forward, will continue to be fascinating and interesting. But for sure, that's, I think, the divisions that we're looking at. And I think this is where we have to start to deal with them. Thank you so much for listening this week. Looking forward to covering early Christianity in Britain in more depth next week. However, as we do, uh, I want to talk briefly about what's happening tomorrow. Tomorrow, the Distractions Media is fundraising for Extra Life for two hospitals. I know we've had this ad going forward on every episode for about a month now. It's tomorrow. I hope you will come watch at least some of it. We start at noon Eastern, which is 5 o'clock in Britain. Early morning for some of you and late night for others. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll watch at least a little bit. It, it, we're playing video games. We're playing board games. We're doing all sorts of different things. It's more about entertaining you and not about history, <laughs> if I'm blunt. But I think you'll enjoy it. I think it's interesting and fun to do. Last year we did it. We raised a little bit of money. I would love to raise a lot more because these are for good causes. They're for children in need, children that go to hospitals and live in critical condition and have to deal with those consequences and parents who have to deal with the financial problems that come with this. And so one of the things that we try and do is raise this money so that we can help parents and children to not have at least the expense part of it dealt with. And if we can help with research into things, that's great too. And my hope is, is that we come out of this having built up a bigger community, having built up a financial commitment that we can give to these hospitals, and most importantly, that we can come out of it with our understanding that we made a difference. And as we move forward on this, as I said, I hope you'll be there. It's going on at twitch.tv forward slash distractions media. Uh, if you can't be there or it doesn't really interest you, if you'd please donate, we would love that. You can find links to the donations at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations. There's a couple of different links, one for Canadian hospital, one for an American hospital, but certainly this money will help cover them. But it also is something that we've done for the last couple of years, picking and choosing those. But uh, as we go forward, we'll probably change things up next year. But we're going to continue to do this marathon. And we really believe in what it does for people and, and how it's helpful. And we hope you'll participate. And I hope you'll, you know, give us a cheer or, you know, tell us what we're doing wrong. Because I'm sure there will be lots of us screwing up. And uh, I'm sure there's interesting things to be found at 
in it uh, for anybody who's interested in those kind of storytelling or video games or any of that kind of thing. Either which way, this podcast going forward, we'll no longer have that ad next week. But if you want to contact me about anything, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook at Welsh at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. And anything you have suggestions, ideas, books you'd like me to try and find, I try to do and will attempt to find them. That'd be great. Uh, if you have something or, or some material that might be a good supplementary storyline. If you have an idea for stories you want me to talk about, just just let me know and I will do that. Anyway, until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Have yourselves a great day. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.